0: Welcome to the Orange Crest Community Church Podcast. Our hope is that this weekly podcast provides both encouragement and challenge as you move forward in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for listening. Good morning. Each of these messages, we've been highlighting the components of a bad decision. This is one of them. Make yourself vulnerable. If you make yourself vulnerable, you're setting yourself up for a bad decision. Last week, we talked about giving to pressure. That's another way to make a bad decision. week before that, we talked about refusing wise counsel. And then the first week of this series, we looked at thinking short-term. So those are four ways to make a really bad decision. Think short-term, refuse wise counsel, give in to pressure, and then today, make yourself vulnerable. We've looked at these so that we could know how to avoid bad decisions. Uh, but there's also another reason. Uh, it's because we tend to confuse mistakes with bad decisions we tend to get confused on what is a mistake and what's a really bad decision. Uh here's an example of of that confusion in our culture. Uh here's a headline from the UK. Cocaine mistake, a deep regret. I mean, that's a pretty big mistake. Like how do you how do you unintentionally snort cocaine? I mean, that's 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 an interesting way of phrasing that. It was a mistake. Really? I didn't know what that was, and I decided to inhale it. <laughs> or athletes who get caught in doping scandals, they tend to call it a, a mistake. And that was a mistake. Okay. Or politicians who cheat on their wives, and they say, you know, I made a big mistake. Or or a business person who, who leaves a portion of their income off their IRS return and, and they get caught and then they come and they say, Sorry, my 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 mistake. And whenever a person in the public gets caught doing wrong, you want to listen closely in and, and hear how they respond because their response is going to determine a lot in terms of how effectively they'll be able to unwind this mess that they've just created. If they see it as a mistake, it's 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 unlikely they're going to understand how to unwind this thing. And so during this series, what we're doing is we're looking at epic bad decisions in the Bible so that we can effectively unwind and and unravel them God's way. Esau, the first week of this series, made a hasty decision. He thought short-term, and it cost him a fortune. The next week, we talked about a man named King Rehoboam. He rejected wise counsel, and it cost him more than half his kingdom. Last week, one of our pastors, John, he shared about... The story of Samson, and he gave in the pressure, and it cost him his life. And today, our story is from the darkest period of King David's life. Uh, king David, he was the second king of Israel. Uh, he is. He's referred to as a man after God's own heart. I mean, David was a really good man. I'm going to read you a passage of scripture later where you see David's uh, a description of David's life, and it sets him out as a. a, a Sort of a shining example in a way. And he, he was a really good man. He was, he was a righteous man. He, he was wholehearted in his uh, relationship to the Lord. However, this chapter that we're going to look at, and a few chapters of, of, of uh, 2 Samuel, it highlights a really dark period of David's life. And so let's pick it up. First, 2 Samuel chapter 11. We'll start at verses 1 through 4. You can follow along. It says, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David, the king, sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. He sends out his commander, okay, Joab. And they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. He stays at home in his palace. Verse 2, one evening David got up from his bed, so catch that, it's evening and he's in bed and and... Uh, I I don't know if it's afternoon or late evening, but uh, one evening he gets up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? That's one of David's warriors who's out in the battlefields. And then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him. And he slept with her. Now, the decisions that he made in this incident with Bathsheba are, are criminal. You're, you're about to see how bad this gets. Uh, this is a story, as you'll see in the Bible, it reminds me of watching a Dateline episode or 60 Minutes or something like that. I don't know if you've ever watched Dateline or 60 Minutes, but, or those, you know, real crime, uh, documentaries, and you should never watch these things just before you're about to go to bed. Cause they're disturbing, almost all of them. And, uh, where you hear some exclusive about some star or some athlete or somebody that we all know, and they do something really horrible and despicable, and then you're sort of left struggling to reconcile the person you thought they were and then what you just saw on the screen. Sometimes it's criminal behavior, oftentimes pretty despicable behavior. So how do you go from, in David's case, this courageous hero who steps up as a young shepherd boy, a courageous shepherd boy, to defend God's honor, when there's a giant... Named Goliath, the Philistine warrior who is huge, heads taller than anyone. And he is taunting the armies of God and he's defying God. And he's just challenging any warrior to come out and fight him. And, and everybody in, in Israel is shaking in fear. No one wants to fight him, not the king, no one. And David, this young shepherd, hears the taunting and he says, I'll step up and fight this. Who, who's going who's to who's courageously stand up for God? And David says basically, I'll, "I'll go. We can't let this man taunt us like he is." And here, here's a, a famous uh, sculpture. These are the eyes from Michelangelo's sculpture of David. And this, the artist Michelangelo, he's trying to depict the determination in the eyes of David. He has a sling. If you saw the, the, the sculpture, he has a sling, he has, or he has a sling and he has stones. And he is determined to take down Goliath, and he is the gaze of his eyes. Um, all of the uh, the plaques are saying his eyes are focused as if towards Goliath. Just determined, this is this is this is going to end right here. And he he's but he's a small man in stature. I mean, he's brave but he's small. But he decides no one defies God like this. And under David's leadership, I mean, and he he slays the giant. Cuts off the giant's head. And then under David's leadership, Israel begins really a golden age where there is victory after victory after victory under David's leadership as the king. And it's the golden age of of Israel. But then David's actions turn dark. He's a very controversial figure in our day and age as we look back at his story because of this scene that we're reading about in 2 Samuel 11. His actions were definitely despicable. He's got all this power... And it goes dark. Look at this quote from 19th century British historian, Lord Acton. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. And the truth about King David is that he was both a a hero and a zero at the same time. How is that? I mean, how was he both of these things? You know the reality is if we're all honest if we really were to look in the mirror and we just look at the heart our heart of hearts and we know ourselves we know our sin we know our struggles we know our temptation we know the things we feel that we're both you know we have a mix of nobility and cruelty we're, we're capable of doing such amazing things God can really use us we can be so kind we can be so loving we can serve we can you know God can work through us and at the same time we can step into the sin nature and we can be selfish and proud and arrogant and hurtful and we can do both noble things and cruel things at the same in the same day. And so nonetheless David's story it's a troubling story. So I want to break it down. I want to look at the elements of David's despicable decision. And you can jot these down in your listening guide. They won't be on there, but you, they'll be up here on the screen. So Three things I want you to highlight. One is he shunned responsibility. David shunned responsibility. Take a look at the passage again. 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab. So, at the springtime means the rains were over, and this would typically signal the time when the military ought to continue advancing. It's time to fight. It's time to take new ground, and so, the track record of Israel was they kept advancing and taking ground. This would have been time to keep keep advancing as the king. But David sent Joab, his commander, out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. And they go to battle. They destroy the Ammonites. They besiege Rabbah. But David remains in Jerusalem. This passage is clear that, that rather than going to war with his men, the king he shunned his responsibility. He stayed home. This was about ten years into David's kingship. So at this point, he's enjoying the progress that, that they'd made. He's enjoying his fame. Uh, David starts taking it easy. We don't, all, we don't fully understand why he chose this, uh, but he, he cuts back and he decides instead to enjoy some extra rest. And this may not seem like a big deal, but this was the beginning of a series of really, really bad decisions. So I want you to stop for a moment and think about this point of shunning responsibility. Stop and reflect on your core responsibilities. What is it that, that has been assigned to you in life? What is it that you, you have to keep a firm grip on some things? David needed to keep a grip on some things, like leading the kingdom. What, what, what is it that has been assigned to you? What are those core responsibilities you need to keep a firm grip on? Mentally, spiritually, physically, emotionally, like, of all of those things, what is it you need to keep a firm grip on? See, David, he loosened his grip. Don't, don't do that. Don't loosen your grip like David. It, it's a setup. When you start loosening your grip, it's a setup for a problem that's coming. Number two, he made himself vulnerable. It's the title of this message. He made him, you know, make yourself vulnerable. It's a setup if you do. The passage continues. Look at verses 2. Verse 2, it says, One evening David got up from his bed. He walked around the roof of the palace, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. Well, here's David, unaccountable. The troops are at war. He's pretty much got some extra time on his hands, and he's immediately tempted. He sees this beautiful woman bathing down below, and he could have realized that he was unaccountable, and he could have shored some things up, maybe gathered some servants just to say, Hey, can you clear the pallet? Make sure I'm, I'm about to go up on the roof, make sure this is a good time to go. He's got he's got no accountability at this point, and he doesn't do that. He doesn't shore things up. Instead, he proceeds to move in the wrong direction. So let's stop again and ask ourselves, ask yourself this question, where and when am I most vulnerable? Where and when do you find yourself most tempted? Where Where do you find temptation coming up in your life? Where are you enticed? How are you enticed? Where and when? What do those circumstances typically look like? Okay, back to David. Next, he sinned, and he covered it up. Or at least he tried to cover it up. Now, this was not a mistake. This was a sin. It was despicable, too, and it goes from bad to worse. Look at verses 3 and 4 again. It says, David sent someone to find out about her, and the man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. David knew who Uriah was. This is one of his mighty warriors. In fact, he's listed as, in a different part of the Bible, as one of David's mighty men. This is, she's married, David. <laughs> Off limits. In fact, her husband is out fighting the battle for you right now, along with the rest of the armies of Israel. This is Bathsheba. But what does David do then? David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. So David wrongly uses his power at this point to get something he wants that is completely off limits for David and out of bounds in the eyes of God. And then David, he sends Bathsheba home and she becomes pregnant and she sends word to David that she is now pregnant with child. So some time has passed. Uh, here's the problem. Her husband Uriah is off at war and, and as and Bathsheba's belly grows, it's only going to be obvious to everyone in the land that this is not Uriah's child. Somebody else has has been involved in this. So does David admit at this point? No. He doesn't admit. Instead, what he does, he sends for her husband Uriah. He, he thinks up a plan. I need to cover this up. And so bring Uriah back from the battle. So he calls for Uriah. Uriah comes because he's thinking if Uriah can just enjoy some intimate time with his wife, It will appear like this is their child. But, here's the key point, covering up sin magnifies and multiplies our trouble. Anytime we try to cover up what we've done wrong, that's clearly sin, the problem grows. It multiplies. And so what happens is Uriah comes back, but since his men are out fighting a war... He doesn't want to dishonor the sacrifice that his men are making. And so instead he sleeps. He won't go in to sleep with his wife instead he sleeps each night with the servants of the palace. Cuz he's thinking if I if I if my men can't go home and enjoy time with their wives, why should I? He doesn't want to dishonor the good men that are out there fighting. Uriah is a really good man. David then tries to get him drunk in order to, hey you're you're doing well out there come and let's have a drink together. He gets him drunk. In order to try to coax him to, hey, go home. David Uriah refuses still to go home and be with his wife. Instead, he still sleeps where the servants sleep. Now, sadly, David takes it to a whole other level. Really a criminal level. So take a look at verse 14. It says, In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. Okay, So he's about to send Uriah back to the battlefield. And he sends Uriah the husband of Bathsheba, with this letter. In it, he wrote, David wrote this, Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him, so he will be struck down and die. Now, do you understand what's happening here? Uriah is carrying his own death wish, pretty much his death wish, in his hands. He has no idea, because it's a sealed letter. He takes it to Joab from David. Verse 16, So while Joab had the city under siege... You know, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab. Some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Verse 18 says, Joab then sent David a full account of the battle. So fast forward, there's a messenger that goes back to Jerusalem to give David this report. And here's the report, you find it in verse 23. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance to the city gate. Then the archers, they shot at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. In David's mind, sort of like mission accomplished, you know, cover up. Now get this, it gets even worse. David told the messenger, say this to Joab. Hey, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Yikes. It's like you win some and you lose some in battle. This is the, this is the, this is the cost of, of business. This is the cost of doing war. This is, you know, don't let this upset you, Joab. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. Now, look at verse 27. What do you do for a mourning widow? At the time the mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, because she's a widow now. And she became his wife and bore him a son. Do you see how twisted this is? I mean, David's like, oh, poor, poor Uriah's wife. She's all on her own. I'll quickly take her in, be one of my wives. She became his wife, bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. How, how could she really trust David from this point on, Bathsheba? How could Joab, the commander, even really trust David moving forward? Because this act was a major destabilizer in, lead, in David's leadership. Because the people closest to him knew just how far he was willing to go to cover up. I mean, this is a major destabilizer for a leader. But this thing had, that David had done has displeased the Lord. I mean, it's really clear. God was not at all amused. And it wasn't until David was confronted by a prophet named Nathan that he finally came clean and admitted it and repented. But a serious price was paid by David and, and his whole family line. The child that was born to them um, died. But then there was just bloodshed and murder in David's family line. This was Everything that David had done came back around full circle as a consequence to David. Serious price was paid by David. Now, here's what's perplexing. Jesus Christ sits on the throne of David, of the family line of David. I mean, still, God worked through this family line of David's lineage. Jesus Christ sits in that, in that lineage. If God only worked through perfect people, he would never accomplish anything through people. Because people are imperfect. I mean, this is is what is so difficult about this story. If God only worked through perfect people, then none of us could be used by God. Instead, he graciously forgives and doesn't give up on those who really follow him. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 8. This is what it says in the New Testament. God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Still, David is such a controversial figure, and God's grace to David doesn't make that much sense to us. Like, why still work through a man like David? How how does God's grace really work? Uh, There's a I'm going to flip over to a different passage that I was reading. Um, That's not going to be up on the screen, but I'm just going to read you a passage. Scripture first first Kings chapter fifteen. Some of, the, some of the parts of the books of the Kings and Chronicles just sort of document the history of the, the, the people God used, a lot of the Kings. And so as I was reading this in my time with God, my quiet time, I came across these verses about a man named Abijah. See, after David, things just began to unravel. Because of that act, It just that gets sort of generationally passed down line and, and things start unraveling. Most of the Kings... Who came later were wicked and corrupt kings. There was a few kings in in Judah that were good kings, but most of the kings in Israel were despicable kings. and And the kingdom was divided under. Remember under Rehoboam's story, we looked at that a few weeks ago. Um, but one of the kings, his name is Abijah, the king of Judah. It says he reigned in Jerusalem three years. And it says in First Kings fifteen three that Abijah committed all the sins his fathers had done before him. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. As the heart of David, his forefather, had been. I'm like, what? Did I read that right? I'm like, wait. As a fa- and then verse 4. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord, his God, gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by raising up a son that Solomon to, su- to succeed him and by making Jerusalem strong. Verse 5. For David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not failed to keep any of the Lord's commands all the days of his life. Oh, dash, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. Except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. So that that's referring to this incident. And I was reading that and I was like, wow, and I, I really reflected on that. Like, of what that's saying about David. He did, it's like all of his life he walked with God wholeheartedly, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. Um, it it leads me to believe, because the scripture talks about David as a man after God's own heart, it leads me to believe that David was a really, really good man, a very righteous man, a noble man, a sacrificial man, a courageous man, a godly man, but not a perfect man. And when he sinned, he sinned royally, and it snowballed because he failed to confess it right away. It got worse and worse. If he had just said, go get Uriah, Uriah, I'm at your mercy. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against God. I forfeited my... And then and, and just bear the consequence of whatever that would have meant at that point. I don't know what it means. Swords and duels. I don't know what that would have meant. But he didn't do it. Instead, he tries to keep covering it up. Still, like you, you read about David and, and I mean, I mean, newsflash, David penned many of the Psalms. Many of the songs that we sing are adaptations of psalms from the Bible that David, that God used David to write. It's because David was a really good man, but he fell really low and it got really dark for a period of time. Probably a period of weeks while this was all playing out, maybe months. So how does God's grace really work? I think this is such a helpful story because this is an example of grace in a very extreme case. And God, what he's done is he makes sure that real stories of real people are recorded in the Bible to remind us over and over and over again that we're never too far removed from the grace of God. That's really good news for all of us. We're never too far removed from God's grace. So what that means is if you have blown it in life, there's hope for you. Or if someone you know, someone close to you, a sibling, a spouse, a really dear close friend, someone you've even looked up to, has blown it in life, there is hope for them. Because there was hope for David. God actually restored David after all of this. And we, we scratch our heads and we go, God, how could you still use the man? Well, God chose to use the man. Was there a price to be paid? For sure. There was a lot of bloodshed. A lot of pain. A lot of consequences. God didn't spare those consequences. But God still used David. It's a troubling story because it was wrong what he did. But if we don't realize that we could have done the very same thing, then we end up responding like the older brother did in the story of the parable of the prodigal son. You know the story of the prodigal son who the son rebels and chases his his passions and, and spends all his father's money and then realizes I'm out of money and I'm I'm so hungry, I could die. This pig slop looks appetizing to me. I'm so hungry. And he realizes, I could go home. My father would forgive me. My father would feed me, at least as a servant. I could serve as a, just as a low servant in my family. And he goes home. And the older brother, who had done everything right, is like, you didn't throw a party for me, Dad. You see, we we look at sin In other people's lives, and we judge people like David because we tend to think, well, I'm a mistaker, and David's a sinner. And so, but the reality is, is that we all sin. And sin is sin. It's not a mistake. It's sin. And we all can sin royally. And we need to understand our vulnerabilities in life so that we can protect ourselves from doing something like this, which will bring serious harm and damage. God didn't spare that. So with the grace of God as our backdrop to this story, then let's look at how, how do we avoid compromise. Flip to the back of this listening guide. Here's some ways to avoid compromise in our, own, in our own lives. Number one, be diligent. Be diligent. Proverbs 21 verse 5 says, The plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. So hard work, not being lazy, hard work protects us from harm and poor decision making. If you're not a diligent person, you're going to pay a price. There's no way around it. If you're a lazy person, you're going to pay a price. There's no way to pull one on God and to try to spare yourself from the consequences. You can't sneak around God. You can't play games with God. This will catch up. Working hard protects us. See, when he shunned his responsibilities and he loosened his grip like that and stopped being diligent and sharp, he was setting himself up. So the word diligent in the original Hebrew means sharp and determined. It's like it means to have a laser focus to do what needs to be done in life. And all of us, there's some things you need to be diligent in. If you go slack-handed, if you go lazy, if you go uh, ease, you get off track, you're going down a harmful path that will have some consequences. So that's one thing to shore up. Be diligent. Number two, don't make yourself vulnerable. This is David's story. He could have shored things up. He could have sent a servant onto the rooftop. He could have just said, hey, don't let me be alone, servants. I, I don't trust myself. He could have done all sorts of things, but he failed to do it. Uh, you can jot down Proverbs uh, chapter 5, verses 7 through 10. You can read about that later. It's, it's a passage that is related to adultery. Basically, the essence of the passage is don't go near the adulterer's house because you'll be vulnerable. Instead, what we need to do is we need to build a a hedge of protection between us and the temptation. There's no need to prove how strong you are. Hey, look at me. I I can really be tempted and not get burned. I mean, how often do we, you know, we know our vulnerabilities and yet we fail to shore things up in our life, fail to be honest, fail to to really um, build in some some boundaries or take a few steps back from that cliff that has that has taken us before the word vulnerable in in the latin actually means to to be able to be wounded it's sort of like you're 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 like an you're the spot where you can be taken down you need to know where that is in your life so we shouldn't put ourselves in vulnerable situations where we leave ourselves open to harm here's three ways these are not on your listening guide but you can jot them down to make yourself vulnerable number one restless energy proverbs twenty one twenty five says the sluggard's craving will be the death of him because his hands refuse to work. When we're not busy doing what we should like David, we tend to get into trouble. Have you ever made a really bad decision because you were bored? Yeah, I have. I mean, I tend to eat more when I'm bored. <laughs> I tend to spend more when I'm bored. I mean boredom feeds desire. And so restless energy is really the opposite of diligence. Too much time on our hands, you know, we we tend to ignore our responsibility, and that's not a good thing. The second thing to watch out for is really the flip side of restless energy. It's emotional depletion. If you're exhausted, meaning you're spent, you're drained, you're just worn down right now, you're worn out, however you want to say it, you're really vulnerable. You can't, when you're depleted, you can't pick up your shield in a fight. You need to be Holding that shield, it's too late if you're in the fight and you, oh, shoot, I left the shield on the ground. You're, you're vulnerable. It's crucial that when we're depleted, we find some ways to get filled up. That's why God established something called the Sabbath, a day to rest, a day to, to be with God, to commune with him, to rest from working. Six days of work is the pattern, and then one day of real rest. And God rested on the seventh day. Of creation. He set an example. He made us to need a good rest and recharge about once a week. God didn't need to rest Himself. He, he didn't need to recharge. He's, he is full of energy. He created everything. He has all the power in the world, but He modeled this even for us. So pay attention to three gauges. Pay attention to your physical, your spiritual, and your emotional gauges. And if any of these are running on empty, your physical, spiritual, and your emotional gauges, then you need to pay attention. You're being depleted. If your physical gauge is low, then you need to get some extra sleep. You need to do some exercise. You need to be healthy. If your spiritual gauge is low, you need to spend some extra time with the Lord. You need to say no to some things in order to say, I I am so drained spiritually right now. I just need to get some time with the Lord. And I need to pull into some groups where I'm going to be encouraged. Maybe take a rest from some things you do that don't, Feed your spiritual lives and do some more things that do feed your spiritual life. And third, emotionally, if the gauge is really low, slow down. Focus on rest and renewal. But this is important. Then the third thing to watch out for, which makes us vulnerable, is, is refusing to admit my weakness. Proverbs 10, verse 9 says, The man of integrity walks securely, but he who takes crooked paths will be found out. Integrity here in the Hebrew means to be blameless. To be blameless in the Bible does not mean to be perfect. What blamelessness is, it means you, you've you made sure that no one can point a finger and blame you for something that you haven't already made right. It means that there's nothing hidden in the closet of your life that they could destroy you or bring more consequences. It means that you're dragging out from what's lurking in your life, the sin, and you're bringing it out. You're coming clean. You're constantly bringing that stuff out, and you're, you're admitting, I struggle with this. I'm tempted by that. Not to everybody, but, to, but you're being honest with God, and you're being honest with a few people that, that really help you grow and stay on track. That's a person of integrity. They, they're, they're constantly bringing things out into the open, and th- it's a pretty secure walk. It doesn't mean they're perfect. It just means they can keep moving forward. They're known. Now, nobody's perfect but we need to clean up when we mess up and that's that's the point here and there's security in the lord to just admit our weakness because of the grace of god that's how we that's why we can admit our weakness because of the grace of god which really brings us to the final part of david's life he finally shows that if you compromise confess confess david did some despicable things that he'll never be able to erase you can't blot these chapters out of the book. You know, but God forgave the wrong that David did. And God still used David. That gives us so much hope in life. In the end, David didn't run. He didn't make excuses. When a prophet confronted him and said, hey, you have sinned against God. you abused your power. You murdered this man. David owned it. He admitted it. He owned up to his sin. And I want to show you the beginning of, of Psalm 51. You can read this whole chapter later. This is the beginning of his confession. There's two chapters where he's referring back to confessing this sin. And but look at Psalm 51, verses 1 and 2. For the director of music, a psalm of David. When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfilling love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He came clean to Nathan, the prophet. More importantly, he came clean to God. And if you've blown it, if you've never, you know, if you've blown it and you're just wallowing in that, then you're not forever tainted by your sin. You can be washed clean. David is an example of that. God can renew you. He can restore you. He can rebuild the damage confession and confessing sin primarily brings forgiveness and freedom if you've made a bad decision the most important and first step is to admit you're wrong call it what it is don't call it a mistake call it a sin whenever we step out of moral boundaries to get what we want and to just go with what we feel regardless of what what is right we sin and we need to call that what it is this was a sin The Bible tells us that unless we admit our sin, we never experience God's forgiveness because there's no need for forgiveness when it comes to mistakes. You don't forgive mistakes. But sin requires a Savior to to forgive that. But wow, I'm a mistaker. That, That feels and sounds so much better than I'm a sinner. But for many, that's the gap that keeps them in the dark is not failing to see a life of sin. And situations of sin that that are blocking real progress and peace in life. So this is the first step in handling wrongdoing: confession. If we don't admit our full sin, we never experience the grace of God, and we're we're left trying to justify ourselves and justify our actions. But God forgives confessed sin and promises to help you get back on track if you confess. First John one nine says, if you confess your sin. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Admitting you're wrong also rebuilds trust with those that you've wronged. It increases your credibility. Like in David's case, he damaged his credibility, but the confession is why you can say, okay, I understand why people were able to work with David moving forward. Because he brought it all out, and God chose to still work with and through this man. Fully confessing your sin is is the first and most crucial step to begin to unwind a mess that you've made. Covering up sin. Here's the two sides of David. Covering up sin magnifies and multiplies our trouble. David tried that. And confessing sin brings forgiveness and freedom. I'd like to ask you to, as the worship team joins me back up here on stage, I'd like to ask you to consider ways to... To apply this message to your own life. And so maybe one way to take it home is to, is to read Psalm 51 this week in full and record key insights. Go back through this story in 2 Samuel 11. Read the story for yourself. Meditate. Reflect on it. Let God speak to you through it. But then flip over to Psalm 51 and see this confession that David gives. Get to, get to understand David's story and, and allow God to speak to you and prompt you through this second ask god to show me any vulnerabilities i have in my life a lot of times this is the the challenge is people we're tempted to just not admit vulnerabilities and so i hope this has been helpful to to you as you've examined and let god you know maybe highlight some areas where you need to give attention give some more prayer and thought to it this week so let's let's pray father thank you for our time together thank you for the time of worship time of looking at your word Lord, thank you for David's life, his story. Lord, if, if David were just a perfect man who never did anything wrong, it'd be hard to. Uh, I mean, we would just be enamored by David. And, and, but this, this sort of balances things out, and we see, wow, he was such a good man. You used him. At the same time, he did some despicable things. And none of that is excused. We don't honor the, the, the bad. But we honor you, God, for your grace, for your kindness, that you would show any of us, that you would give us a way to know you. We all know our own sin. We know everything we've ever done to sin against you, and and we're amazed at your grace. May it never be something we get tired of, um, showing gratitude for your amazing grace. Lord, right here, right now, for those that are maybe... Maybe they're here and they've never really experienced the grace of God. They, they would say, I, I don't really know that I know God personally. I've heard about him. I've, I've heard about Jesus and what he did on the cross. But I I don't feel like I've I've ever become a Christian. Never really experienced God's forgiveness. I've never admitted I'm a sinner and I need someone to save me. And, and today I'm ready. I need that. I'm just buried in, in guilt and shame. And, and I'm ready to... Invite Jesus to save my life and to be the Lord over my life. Would you help me with that? God, I pray for those that are really praying that and considering that. Lord, I pray that you'd move them to a point of, of action, to respond to you in their own hearts, Lord. And then to tell someone about that. Maybe to to talk to one of our leaders or talk to the person that, that brought them this morning. Or, or for those that are here that already know Jesus and that are trying to walk with Jesus. But maybe there's some areas of, of David's story that has just struck a chord. Because maybe there's something that maybe we're not seeing as sin. And we're calling it more of a mistake. And there's vulnerabilities that we're not really willing to admit. God, I pray you just do your surgical work in our hearts right now. That we would be people that you'd be pleased with. That we, that as David is described as a man after God's own heart, that's because of he, he cleaned it up. And then, Father, even through his brokenness, even through the pain, even through the death, even through everything that went on, God, you still used him. Lord, may you, may you use us. Lord, help us not to be uh, running all of our lives, but help us to, to yield to you, we pray. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray you've been encouraged by the message and equipped to move forward in obedience to God's word. Join us again next week for another Orange Crest Community Church podcast.